0: So in the parables in Matthew 13, over the last couple of weeks, the kingdom of heaven, life with God in His presence and towards His purpose was described as an abundant treasure we find and a drive to keep finding what we found. Whether stumbled over or searched after, life with God as these stories described would have us turn over all that we hold on to and take hold of life, beautiful and of great worth. Today's parable finds us coming full circle. Back to where we started, not finding but being found, actually more like being caught up in the work of the Son. And so finding, Lord willing, peace amid the murky middle. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then Cohen will come up and read for us today's parable. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, with with hearts um, open, with eyes open, with ears open by your grace and your spirit to the words of your Son. Asking, Father, that we would see and hear and know life with you beyond what we can imagine through the midst and murkiness of our own hearts and the life in which we live. And so we just, yeah, we just come before you humble and ready to hear what you have to say. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was thrown into the sea, and of every kind gathered together. Which, when it was full, they drew it ashore, and sat down and sorted the good into containers, and the bad they cast out. So it be it the consumption of the age. The angels will go out and separate the evil from the midst of the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thanks, buddy. Technology, gotta love it. So, we'll need a bit more context to understand our story, especially in a manner that trains us in the kingdom of heaven so that we might be like scribes, wisely able to live wisely and share that wisdom with others. Um, This story, often taken alone kind of might find us lost, but if we take it in the context, I think we'll find what we're looking for. So again, grab your Bibles, open to Matthew 13, and follow along through the subtitles at least, which might off, be off sometimes, if you read the pastoral note, you might remember, but uh, they do come in handy on occasions like today. So if you're familiar with Matthew 13, um, it's a chapter full of stories. Stories that start off in the first couple of verses uh, where Jesus is speaking to crowds gathered, those who had come to see Him and hear Him in hopes of finding something for which they were searching from Jesus. He tells those that are looking for something from Him these stories. But He also tells these stories and discusses these stories with His disciples, those who have apprenticed themselves to Him, looking to learn from Him the way of making a life with God work. Those who wanted something at the surface level, maybe um, maybe something desperately, and those who had desperately and at least openly given their lives to following Jesus. So stories that were told in public places and stories in conversation. That's what Matthew 13 is full of. The stories begin in verse 3 with an indiscriminate sowing of good seed. A sower went out to sow, Jesus says. As he sowed, some seeds fell along a path. Other seeds fell along rocky ground, other seeds fell among thorns, and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some of a hundredfold. The seed that, as the story unfolds, we learn produces an abundant fold when conditions are right, a hundred, sixty, thirty. While the seed was good, it doesn't always land in a place where its abundance could be experienced in fullness whether it was on the, the path where it got eaten up by the birds right away, in the, in the rocky ground where it couldn't, roots couldn't go deep, or in the thorny areas where the cares of the world choked it out. Regardless, the sower went on just to sowing. He just kept throwing the seed out indiscriminately onto all the soils that were there. The next story in verse 24 follows a similar traje- trajectory. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. This time the seed seed sowed is called good at the get-go, just in case we are wondering. And the obstacle to health and harvest is not the soil, but the efforts of his enemy to get the sower to scrap the whole thing and start over by sowing weeds among the wheat. That's what the enemy would do. He wanted to ruin the crop. Right? That's why, he's, that's why it's an enemy that sows these wheat seeds, right? He wants to destroy it. Make him have to start all the way over again. Till it all up and begin again. Burn it all down and start, start anew. Yet the sower won't take the bait. Verse 29, Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, says the sower, let them grow together. Until the harvest, and at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Despite the obstacles of weeds and wheat growing together, whether having to start over and scrap over again, or try to go through and pull out one weed at a time, which the sower said would cause more damage than good, his servants he instructs his servants to tend to both and sort them out at the harvest time when the time of growth is complete then will carefully and painstakingly separate what is made to last and what was never intended to. He'll do double work at the end, essentially, says the farmer. In these parables, life with God is depicted by Jesus as a life unfolding on the efforts of an indiscriminate, patient sower willing to do double work at the end. And despite such unorthodox methods, which most of the people listening would have recognized immediately, right? They, as a farmer, you don't waste seeds by just throwing them everywhere. You've got tilled soil. You, like, you're, you're, you know where the rocky soil is. You know where the, grainy soil, the, the thorny soil is. You know where the path is. You're throwing out seed, but you're not just throwing willy-nilly, right? Like, and as a farmer, you know if there's weeds, um, wheat, um, weeds amongst the wheat, that you've got to do something about it, lest the weeds might take over, right? Unless like, you lose a part of your crop, lose some of the nutrition that's needed. Like, it would have been unorthodox both to be indiscriminate and to be patient. These, and yet, at the same time, we don't just hear an unorthodox manner, but we see in these stories the one who gathers in abundance, 30, 60, and 100-fold in the end. So not only are the methods weird, but the ending is, is, well, it's a fairy tale. Such a picture comes across like a bad fairy tale, especially to a first-century Jew, right? At least, especially to those who are proverbially trained. Those who are looking to get out of these parables some sort of truth of, of, of here's the one thing if, if we can do um, to, to live, a principle to live on, right? It feels like it's unorthodox. It feels like it's, it's a bad fairy tale. It lacks all practical insight. So we're supposed to just go and live indiscriminately and patiently and naively, Propagating hopes and, and habits that, that have no real-world connection. That's what the way the stories would have initially been heard. Perhaps that's why Jesus adds a few more stories. The first two are practical. In verse 31, Jesus goes on. He says, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and make nests in its branches." Continuing, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven hidden in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. A mustard seed sowed, a tiny seed, as tiny as the period at the end of this sentence, yet grows into something much larger and more inclusive than its starting proportions would, would predict. The leaven hidden in the product of the wheat, the flour, something small in size and in proportion, but having a tremendous Formative and, if we're honest, delicious impact on the thing being made. Because who, who wants unleavened bread? We've, we've tried it, right? It's not that great. Crackers are good, but this stuff, that's the way to go. Right? Listen, a mustard seed and leaven, neither is a hard, is hard to imagine, the impact of both. Both are real examples of significant realities that are commonplace enough and so often overlooked the power of the mustard seed, the implication in its growth, the, the what leaven does to make life whole and good. But having been primed in the practical, the following two stories return us to the fairy tale. So Jesus knows in the first two stories that, the, that if you have any practical sense, those stories might be a little offensive to you or at least make you dismiss them, right? Because they don't make a lot of sense. They're fairy tales. So he gives you a couple practical examples of, well, maybe even in the practicalities of life, you're missing Something that's pretty spectacular, like a little bitty tiny seed that becomes a large tree and which even houses the birds of the air. Or like this little leaven that's hidden in the flower that becomes this thing that allows you to enjoy bread in its fullness and all that it could be, right? Like maybe if you miss some of those practical things, maybe you might miss some of the bigger things. Maybe if those practical things are true, then maybe the way the kingdom of God works in ways that we often miss is actually true too. And so Jesus brings us back to fairy tale kind of land in a little bit of a way, in verse 44, the stories that we've told the last few weeks. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Kind of sounds like a fairy tale, right? Like like a merchant in search of fine pearls, right? Like one who's on this journey. These stories invite us to fill in the image details as we find the treasure hidden and search out tremendously beautiful and valuable things, as we've discussed the last couple weeks. And then... Once again, define the immediate practicality of survival to go after that which ensures thriving now and forever with all we have. Jesus, it stirs up the imagination and then invites us to go beyond even our imagination and to do what the people in the stories did. In their joy, go and sell all that they have to buy the field. On finding, went and sold all that they had to find, all that they had found and bought the thing which they were after. Yet between these four short similitudes, the kingdom of God is like, In in verses 36 to 43, the disciples get off track somehow. Somewhere in the midst of all these stories, the disciples who are listening and dialoguing, hearing as part of the crowd, discussing as part of the apprenticeship with Jesus, they find themselves a bit off track. Rather than receiving more in the stories because of their blessed eyes and ears and open hearts, like verses 11 through 17 describe them. Their imagination narrows. They lose sight of the whole picture that Jesus is painting for them and focus solely on one part of one story. If you read the pastoral note this week, you know what I'm talking about. While Jesus was telling all who would listen about the expansiveness, the patience, and persistence of life with God, even if paradoxically easily easy to overlook its persistent reality, The disciples heard in all these stories that there is evil, that there are weeds, most likely darnell, which is a wheat-like weed, bad seed, in the same place where the good seed is sowed. And that's really the key, right? Not just that there's evil and that there's a bad seed, but the bad seed is mixed in with the good seed in the same place as the good seed. How then does the field have weeds in the story? The servants asked. The master said to them, an enemy has done it. While it's known to the sower to have been snuck in by an enemy, this thing that unsettles the disciples. And so we know that the weeds are there, the evil's there for nefarious purposes, but not perplexing ones. It won't be taken out until the time for growing has reached its maturation. While the sower wasn't baffled at the source or the solution, the disciples were. While the sower wasn't baffled of where the weeds came from, they came from an enemy. Nor was he baffled at the solution. They asked in the story, the servants asked, what do we do? He says, here's what we do. Neither the source or the solution baffles the sower, but the disciples were baffled. And so they demand of Jesus, in verse 36, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, Was it a story about weeds? Weeds were in the story. But again, the story had so many more components than that, right? It's not unreasonable for the disciples, though, to get honed in on this one thing in one story, the weeds, even though there was so much more in the descriptions surrounding it. After all, their history of faith, their expectation of being chosen and set apart by God, by its very nature, was separationist, right? Their inclusion in life with God demanded on excluding bad seeds, especially for a first century Jew, but I would say probably for a lot of our own histories in faith, right? Surely they thought their future of faith, their expectation of being with God, meant a further and fuller separation than they had already known. Their life with God was going to clear out all the weeds, everything that wasn't good. Good seeds sown on all kinds of soil they could at least partly get the good soil would be distinct separated from the poor soils rock thorny or compact whether by the nature of cultivation because the farmer has done the hard work of tilling the soil of clearing out the rock of taking down the thorns or it's it's a field and it's not a path right it's not a road it's use so there's distinction in the soils right but bad seed mixed in with good seed, weeds among the wheat, and allowed to stay mixed in. Now that is an altogether different image than their hearts and their heads had envisioned. I'm not sure that we're all that different as the disciples today. Listen, we love the stories of abundance, of finding treasure and fine pearls, of being lost and found, brought home and restored. And we listen, I don't think we even mind so much the stories that depict the clear boundaries of life with God. Soft soil, cleared out soil, tilled and ready soil. Those images give us something to aim for at least, right? Something to prepare our hearts for. But stories where the separating action is delayed or left to an in judgment. Someone else's judgment besides our own. Even if it is for the good, unsettles us. How many of us were unsettled at the last words that Cohen read for us in the story? place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Fiery furnace. How how much that unsettles us, right? it, It unsettles us. The disciples, missing of the point, initially shuts down the conversation. We know this because Jesus ended his explanation of the wheat and the weeds to his apprentices the same way he did his parable to the crowd. In verse 9 and verse 43 are the same. He who has ears, let him hear. That's Jesus' way of shutting down conversation. It's been said. So go, go. Sit on it. Let it sink in, right? Jesus is thus saying to the disciples, the disciples are acting more like the crowds in their thinking about the weeds, in their obsession with the weeds, in their their focus on the weeds. They're ones who lack in in their hearing. They do not hear, nor do they understand that they're missing something. Rather than being ones open into more, rather than being ones who have been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, who have been blessed with eyes to see and ears to hear. Something happens in the disciples. Their focus and their fear actually shrinks their imagination. Nevertheless, even though the conversation is shut down in at at, at verse 43, as is his habit, Jesus does get to the heart of their inquiry and reveals why their hearts were so focused on this particular particularity. Jesus' explanation, while again shuts down the conversation, actually gets to the heart of their hearts. So let's read Jesus' explanation and I'll talk about why. Jesus answered in verse 37, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom of God sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the consumption of the age and the reapers are angels. So what receives six verses in the actual story now receives two quick hitting verses in the explanation. So Jesus in those first two verses in 37 and 38 explains 95% of the story that he just told. He gives all the parts, goes through it, right? But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, which that is all the space in the story that that, that that part of the story contained, right? That the weeds in the fire contained, right? That's it. So it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send the angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So, what received half of a verse of focus in the story gets a weighty three in the explanation. Jesus knew what was on the disciples' minds and their hearts by the way they asked the question. Tell us the story of the weeds. And so he addresses what they're after. He doesn't ignore it, but he doesn't necessarily let it be the only thing that he talks about. But why is this such a big deal for the disciples? Why are the weeds such a big deal? Why do they focus in on that? Maybe the disciples focused on the weeds because they were afraid that the weeds would take over, ruin, or even prevent the harvest. After all, their history of faith, has been a people who at times like like got uprooted taken away into exile, right? At times in their face history, they have been ones who the the ways of the world, the things of the world had basically overgrown all the ways of God, right? So maybe they fear that hey, listen, history's going to repeat itself. They fear the weeds because if there's weeds amongst the wheat, And maybe God's will won't be done. Maybe we can't live in God's kingdom forever, right? Maybe disciples were focused on the weeds because they feared that if there was a mixing of good and bad seeds in the soil, they might be weeds rather than wheat. And who doesn't worry about that when they're all mixed up in the middle? Well, if there's two kinds of seeds in the same field, In the same soil, what am I? Maybe the disciples were focused on the weeds because they feared that life with Jesus would not be what they envisioned when they gave their lives to his apprentice, to be his apprentices. That that maybe this life wasn't just going to automatically lead to a clean slate, a clean field, a clean do-over. Maybe they were worried about that because the story's a little bit off, remember? So maybe they're focused on the weeds because they fear that weed, the, the presence of weeds means the harvest won't happen. Maybe but they're afraid of the weeds because they think the presence of weeds might mean they're weeds too, <laughs> right? Maybe they're, they're, they're focused on the weeds and fearful because maybe that means that life with Jesus isn't going to be quite as clean and clear-cut as they would expected. Maybe they were afraid of the weeds, lastly, because they were afraid if things didn't change right now, they never, much less forever, would change. What would be the point of life in God's kingdom if it's just a mixed and muddied mess? Maybe their focus and their fear kept them from seeing what the big picture was. While Jesus' story invited his disciples to dwell deeply on a depiction of an intimate, patient, and persistent, and ultimately abundantly successful sower of good seeds, right? Even when weeds were purposely mixed in, which means even more is the, the sower competent to handle the inevitably mixed in rocks and thorns, But while Jesus' stories invite the disciples to dwell deeply on a depiction of an intimate, patient, persistent, and ultimately abundantly successful sower of good seeds, the disciples' focus and fear suffocated their imagination and their faith to receive more, to live by faith. Jesus' explanation, while not indulging their fascination with the weeds, does begin to free them from these fears, though. Here's how. Again, if, like in the story of the, the person in the field and of the merchant, even to some degree the sheep and the coin, when we imagine those stories, we, always, we have a picture of someone in our head. Maybe even of the shepherd who's coming or the lady who's doing the sweeping or whatever. We have an image of someone. Maybe that's come from a story that we've told. Maybe it's a painting we've seen. Maybe it's just whatever we have in our head. And the same would be true when you're just hearing a story about a sower, a farmer out in the field just doing the same thing. But Jesus, in this, in his explanation, does something for the disciples. He helps them a little bit. He says the sower is not merely an imagined simile. It's not just some random farmer that pops into your head. An old person with great hair, out doing the work. But instead, the sower is the promised person who they knew, the Son of Man. The farmer isn't just some random person. The sower isn't some random person. The sower is the one that's right in front of them. And the harvest is both the consummation of the age. That means it happens when the time reaches its purpose. It's not just an end. Like it's a fullness of purpose. That means that the harvest, that means that the field is, is growing to what it's meant to grow to. When you plant something and you go to harvest, it means it's reached its full fruitedness, right? It's ready, it's ripe, it's it's time to take for its best good. So this happens when the end of good comes. Like this is like good's been able, like everything's meant to come out of the ground as it's supposed to come out of the ground. And not only is it happening in a purposed end, it's executed under the promised person who they know's command. The Son of Man's command. Not just randomly. The work and the workers proceed from His on the ground in the neighborhood, knowing intimately about the situation. The work and wor- the, the the work is not done by just random human agents, but rather His divine agents, and they act to gather out of His kingdom. Notice that what Jesus describes, the sower's field, is His kingdom, not a God distant in idea kingdom. But the Son of Man's kingdom, the person they know's kingdom. And yes, it's His Father's field, but it's His Father's field that He gave the Son. All that would keep them from flourishing, fully and forever is removed. All causes of sin, the sower of the weeds, the enemy, is taken out, as well as those practicing lawlessness, lawlessness that is, going the way of the weeds. All is removed. And so in the end, at the fulfillment, at the consummation, the good seed, listen to this, the good seed will be shown to be what it was. Good seed sown by the good sower, matured to health and harvest because of the sower king's patience and persistence. His work and his final judgment, nothing else. It's not the standard of the servants. To determine if it's wheat or wheat or how it should be handled, it was the sower king's determination and judgment. It's not the servant's determination of how long and when to do it, it's the sower king's patience and persistence. The whole fullness of everything comes up to find its completion in life with the sower king. The enemy, it seems, doesn't just miss out on the last laugh, there's a harvest. Now, it was his hope to not have one, but can't stop the wheat from maturing even in between. I mean, did, you, did, 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 we, not, did we miss that in the story? That the enemy came to sow it in hopes that, the, that the, the harvest would be completely stopped, have to start over all over again, that it wouldn't happen. But instead, the enemy doesn't just miss out on its end, its goal, its terminus, it can't stop the wheat from growing even in between. Because the, 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 the good sower the, good, the sower shows that there's a, there's a harvest indeed at the end. Truly, as Matt read for us, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Surely, if this is true, if this is what life of God is really like... Even in the mixed and muddied, why should I be so focused and fearful? Freed from their singular focus and fears, the disciples can now dream again. They can imagine again. They can get on living by faith. And so the stories of the treasure finder and the pearl seeker. But Jesus doesn't end with those two stories. He doesn't tell the disciples. He tells the disciples one final story. One more invitation to dialogue, conversation, and communion, after which he asked the disciples if they understand, wanting to be sure they do indeed get the point they missed. And it's our final story, too. It's a story of being caught in the end, found in the sower king's life and purposes, even in the mixed and murky waters. And so we may think that the story that Cohen read for us is just a repeat of the wheat and the weeds, because there's a lot of similarities, right? Right? But again, what Jesus was doing in his explanation of the wheat and weeds was pointing out what the disciples were focused on, acknowledging it. Weeds were their thing, right? But also trying to address their fears so that they could enter back in, not to just to an explanation, but into conversation. And so he tells a story that doesn't have an explanation. It sounds like it has an explanation, but it doesn't have an explanation. He doesn't go through like he did in his explanation to the wheat and the weeds and give an an account for every little part in the story, right? But now, with that kind of explanation in their minds, freed from their focus and their fears, able to get back into the almost fairy tale like imagination of the kingdom, he wants to make sure they don't miss the heart of what he was trying to share in the wheat and the weeds. One more time. So he gives them another story that they'll get to enter into. Notice what Jesus says. In verse 47, I believe it's 47, right? Sorry. Yeah, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was thrown into the sea and of every kind gathered together. Now, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out that I think are helpful. The word "dragnet" is unique to Matthew's gospel. It's the only time in the New Testament the, this type of net is used. The, the word for this net, and it's a dragnet. It says um, it literally describes a particular type of fishing net with floaters on top and weights on the bottom, and it's usually something that's pulled out between two or more boats. Josephus describes it as like some of them they've seen as long as 800 feet, long, like long. So you can imagine a multitude of boats spread out over this large area. They've got at the top um, these floaters, like, like some sort of cork floaters, and then the bottom of the net is weighted, so it sinks all the way down into the soil, into the ground, um, the, the seafloor, right? So it goes from top to bottom. So, so it's a full encompassing net, right? And it's a particular type of fishing net, again, that is pulled by multiple boats, and when it's pulled, it catches everything from the water's surface to the seafloor in its webbing. Nothing can escape it. It's a net that when it's moving, when it's being drugged to its fullness, it's too big and wide for any creature or piece of trash or plant or any other thing to avoid. Everything gets caught in it, not just fish. Everything gets caught in a dragnet. It's not a net used to catch a particular kind of fish or thing. This isn't like a net that's just for minnows. You ever seen the minnow nets, right? You know what the minnow nets are? You can just cast them out, got little weights on them, kind of kind of umbrella out and then sink in. They're just for minnows. Sometimes you might get a little like like bass in there or whatever, but you're not going to get the big fish, right? There's nets for tuna. We've all watched the, the shows, right? Or crab or whatever. There's nets for particular fish, right? Particular kinds of fish. This is not it. This is not a net like that. This is a net that catches everything. Trash, fish. Like any sort of creature that was swimming, any sort of thing that was floating, anything in its way, it catches it all. And so Jesus says, and again, the text on the screen reads it. So Jesus says, the net was thrown out into the sea and every kind gathered together. Now, you'll notice in that translation, the word fish isn't used. Now, probably in your translation, the word fish is added. In the original language, not a single manuscript is the word "fish." Is the fish in there? Fish is an, an added word by translators since since we started translating, right? And it makes sense, right? Like I'm sure the word is added in your translation, but it's not the original language. Like us translators filled in the presumed missing part because, well, who wouldn't, right? Like it's a net. It's fishing. Like that's what you're there for. So it's surely it's about the fish that are caught in it. Every kinds of fish. But in doing this, a little bitty mistake, right, just a little bitty assumption, just like we talked about in the other stories, this little quick fill-in rather than a slow meditative thought, thoughtfulness, right? This quick fill-in, what happens? The story then, if that's the case, if, there's fish, if we include fish, the story becomes about separating types of fish and figuring out which fish are good and which are bad. Which ones are there, meant to be there, which ones are not meant to be there? And what happens is we ultimately end up back again at the weed and the wheats focus. Who's the weed and who's the wheats? What's the good fish and what's the not good fish? But he doesn't say good fish, not good fish. He says the good and the bad. Just like he said in this story of the wheat and weeds. Here, the, 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 the reapers will come in and remove all the sources of evil as well as the, law, the lawbreakers, right? It's an all-encompassing thing. Everything that would keep the, the wheat from growing to fullness and to abundance would be removed. Everything that wasn't meant to be for goodness and abundance would be removed. Everything that wasn't meant to last would be taken out. And the only things that are left are the things that were meant from the beginning to be good and to last. But if we just keep putting the fish... We find ourselves back where we were with the wheat and the weeds. So Jesus, in his kindness and his intelligence, his, 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 his sheer brilliance, gives them a story, again, to bring them back into the storytelling mode, a story where they can't get focused too much on the particulars. I mean, try to get particular about an image, Jesus saying that, that, that God's life and purposes catch not just fish, but everything in existence. Try to get too particular in that image, right? How you would go crazy trying to pick, figure out all the good and the bad, right? That's the point. You would go crazy trying to analogously um, Pick out what is every good possible thing that they could find. And believe me, if you read the, if you read commentaries and and religious history, the church has been trying to figure that out for a long time. <laughs> There's no endless parade of, well, here's the 713 different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And these would have been the good ones. So these good ones must mean this kind of stuff, these bad ones must be that kind of stuff. Here's the other bad stuff that you could find, the decaying things you could have find. And like there is no unlimitedness to this kind of crazy. Analogy, interpretation that's gone on in our church history. All because we put the word fish back in the translation. But you keep the word fish out, then it's just everything. Everything that's not good, that's not meant to last, gets thrown back, tossed out. Everything that's good, that's meant for good, caught in God's good purposes, gets put in the containers, brought into his house. Made for its usefulness, used for what it's made for. All those kind of things. But the story doesn't end there. That's the story, but it keeps going. So it catches everything, which when it's full, they drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and the bad they cast out. So it will be in the consummation of the age. When it was full, similar to the wheat and weeds, everything in the kingdom gets drawn up towards its fullness. So when the net can't contain anymore, when it's being drug in, from the depths towards the shore, bringing everything in towards it, moving towards its purpose. When it's completely full, and they'll go at a speed that allows it to fill, right? Too fast, maybe it won't catch everything, too slow, things can get out of it. But at the right speed, it's moving towards fullness. When it's drawn up to its fullness towards the purposed end of the net caster for the good seesower, then they'll sit down and the sorting begins. And only then does the sorting begin. At the end, at the fullness of time, that's when the separating takes place. And again, not by any human agent, but by the divine ones. And for the purpose of casting out the evil from the midst, from the middle of the righteous, so that the righteous might be able to, again, flourish, be abundant. Again, what is removed is what was never meant to last for good. What is kept is what was created for good meant to be good, always, until the end. The angels will go out, says Jesus, as the story keeps going, and separate the evil from the midst of the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He repeats the phrase from the end of the weeds and the wheat. And while the phrase, again, feels menacing, it is meant not to be menacing, but to create emotion, to stir emotion. Because, again, the disciples in their focus, right, when they, when they asked about the weeds, they were really concerned about the end of evil, of how evil and good worked within their life, of what they're getting to. And so they were concerned about the end, right? And are we going to be insiders or outsiders, ones who remain in or cast out? And so Jesus wants to stir some emotion. And he wants to, again, to connect back into the story he's told before. But this term... Being thrown into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, thrown into a fire in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, is a math, Matthew, Mathenian way of denoting something particular. He uses it more than anybody. I think he's used seven times in the New Testament, five in Matthew's gospel, right? Matthew, When Matthew says it, it denotes extreme sorrow and intense emotion. But not just general sorrow or intense emotion, but the intense emotion, extreme sorrow at exclusion from the blessing of God. It's always talked about in this exclusion from God's blessing of life with him, being removed and cast out of life with him. It is what we feel when we discover that we are no longer found in his presence, that we're no longer caught up in the net or the field. That we're no longer caught up in his good purposes. That somehow now we're out of the story. That's the emotion that it's meant to stir. The extreme emotion, the extreme sorrow and intense emotion that happens when you realize that you're no longer caught up in something bigger than you, grander than you, something full and forever. Jesus knows that in all the conversation and images of found and finding, it's easy to get caught up and focus on particulars, usually because of fear of missing out somehow. And so he invites his disciples and us to get caught in a in a, to not get caught in a focus and fear that narrows our vision of life with him, but to be caught in the in the peace of his life, his kingdom, even as mixed and murky as it may be for the moment. So that we might live now as we'll live then, by his patient, persistent, intimate work living as if we really believe the world while inhabited by weeds, a place full of all kinds of junk and stuff in the sea, a place where we can be lost or buried is also a place where we can be found and find treasure hidden where we make a living in incredible beauty and value along our journey if we're looking for it, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Or, as the Apostle Paul would later say it, In our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years happened, the God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in Him. For there is no difference between us and them in this since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, He put us in right standing with Himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in, the murky middle, and restored us to where He always wanted us to be, the harvest, the end. And He did it by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action and view of the public, told the story of the wheat and the weeds where everyone could hear, to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear. But it's now. This is current history. God sets things right. He also makes it possible for us to live in His rightness. So, for just about two minutes, is all we've got time for today. I'm sorry. Is there anything keeping you from seeing the full picture Jesus is painting or living into it? A particular focus or fear? And if there is, or maybe even if there isn't, how is this parable inviting you into peace? It's being caught up in something that might have some mixed murkiness to it, but is moving towards your good and the good of all. I'll pray for us. Give us about two minutes, and then Chaz and Sam will lead us in worship. Father, we thank you that you know us well enough to not just tell us what we need to hear, but to show us the things going on inside of us so that we might be able to, to hear and see in ways that are not limited by our own perspective, but are brought into the grandness, the goodness, the glory of life in you. So help us to see, help us to hear, open our hearts. May we live in the peace that comes through the work of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.